I'm Ali Oshinsky, and this semester I'm taking you on a tour. A tour of the friends you didn't know you could have, the advice you didn't know you could ask for, and the professors you didn't know were like people. This is Professor. 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 Professors are people too. In the first episode of Professors Are People Too, we're going to the basement of the Austin building to meet the most tenured faculty of the English department. Professor. Professor. Gina Barreca. Gina Barreca? You guessed it. Professor. And I'm a professor. Professor. Gina Barreca. Remember in elementary school when you'd see your teacher at the grocery store and you, like, freaked out? It was hard to believe that the Mrs. Wallace who taught you about long division earlier that day was buying potato chips in the grocery store right now. By college, we know better, but somehow our professors remain in that unbelievable realm. The Mr. and Mrs. are now professor and doctor, and instead of long division and potato chips, it's scholarly essays and honorary degrees. These people have incredible awards and accomplishments. They probably went to Yale or Oxford. And I'm over here filling my CV with the most likes I've gotten on Instagram and aspiring to live in a reconstructed minivan someday. With so much difference between us, why would they care about me? And why should I care about them? And that's what I was thinking when I first heard of Professor Baraka, because I heard it through my mom. Al, you have to take a class with Gina Baraka at UConn. That's my mom. She's so funny. And you would love her. And being the avid emailer that she is... And I'm sending you this article. You've got to read it. Around course selection time, she came up again. A friend suggested that I take her creative writing course. It was one of those have-to kind of things. Gina's creative writing class is something that everyone should take, regardless of your major, where you want to end up in life, what career you're looking towards. It will help you in, like, many, many, many ways. So a year later... I enroll in her creative writing course. I kept hearing all these awesome things about Professor Baraka, so how could I not? I saw her stack of books at the co-op. Someone showed me a picture of her with Taylor Swift. And a couple of friends talk about going to her office hours and just hanging out with her. This is going to be so cool. And then in the first class of the semester, she gives us the syllabus. Except she calls it a contract. She stresses the importance of deadlines and said that if we're late, we will not be welcomed. We had seven papers to write for this class with two deadlines per week. And if we got the assignments in late, she wouldn't even look at them. No exceptions. I give very strict deadlines for getting work done. I don't accept work late. There are no electronic devices allowed in my classroom. If I see you With your hands in your lap, I'm going to assume you're masturbating. It's essential that everybody is awake and alert and paying attention. Students have to learn how to take notes. I do not write on the board. I grew up in New York. I do not turn my back on a crowd. Wow. This is going to be a lot of work. But it didn't feel like Professor Barreca made it this way because she was out to get us. Within the boundaries that are set, there's an enormous amount of freedom is what I think is important. And 
So I'm about making sure that the classes are very structured, that I think the students know what my expectations are, and again, I, I think that most people rise to them, but that within that structure, everybody can feel comfortable. After the first couple weeks of class, we start to realize how big a deal Professor Baraka is. As it turns out, her heyday was not at Yale or Oxford, but... Cambridge University, where I was um, a Reynolds Fellow. She's got a couple of accomplishments. I was honored by the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame, regular on Faith Middleton's NPR show. Hi, Faith Middleton. I hope you're listening. The 100 Best Books, Honorary Degrees, Elle's Reader's Pick. She's written and edited a few books. Uh, there's Untamed and Unabashed. They used to call me Snow White, but I drifted. Penguin Book of Women's Humor. Last Laughs. I'm with Stupid. Sex and Death in Victorian Literature. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. If you lean in, Lamentus Look Danny Bass was 10. And then for edited, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. She's got a column that gets syndicated in just one or two places. The Hartford Current, Seattle Times, Georgia, the Arab Emirates. I'm big in New Zealand. And she's been on Oprah. I've been on Oprah four times. You would never get paid to go on any of these TV shows. It was on 2020 and 48 Hours and Oprah and the Today Show. Then the idea is that it will get you publicity. But being on Oprah was really fun because returning to school the next day after taping out in Chicago at the Harpo Studios, it was the only time that students would come up and like high five me in the hallway, the students I'd never met. And I thought, that's what you're doing in the afternoon. You're supposed to be in the library. How do you know I was on TV if you weren't watching TV? What are you doing watching? It was fun. And my relatives, being my relatives, um, would say, no, you look good. You looked a little heavy. Each time we learned something new and impressive about Professor Barreca, it was intimidating. She was such an accomplished woman, and she wanted to read my writing. In those first weeks, I could feel the same resistance from my classmates. Some people wanted to be mysterious. Others were just shy. But I'm pretty sure we all wanted to impress her. But story sharing would not be a competition in Professor Barreca's classroom. And soon I realized that every accomplishment she shared was just the backdrop for a story, a story that worked perfectly. One of the times I was on Oprah was with these two women who were called the Rules Girls. They'd written a book called uh, The Rules, and it should have been titled How to Start Your Bad First Marriage. It was an advice book for young women about how to trap some poor, unsuspecting guy into marrying them, uh, basically by withholding sex. And I thought this wasn't really such great advice. Um, not the withholding sex part, you can do or not do anything you want um, as you choose, but using that as a form of power seemed manipulative and also a setback to uh, some sort of 17th century patriarchal guidebook that did not seem to have women's autonomy and independence as its goal. So um, I had been on Oprah a couple of times before that, and so I knew what to expect being on the show, and um, they knew what to expect from me as a guest, and so they knew I was not exactly going to be this shy, retiring guest. And there were these two women who were exactly my age, and uh, there was a blonde and a brunette, and not to sound nasty, but the blonde was as blonde as I am, which is not blonde. 
<laughs> the blonde talks like she's very New York, very New York, Long Island accent. And so that's not far. You know, that was sort of in my youth. And so I can do that. The brunette, her, her co-author, did not speak for whatever reason. It's like Penn and Teller. So I come on, and I'm wearing a scarf and uh, pearls, and so I look like every female expert is supposed to look. So I'm there to be the expert. I'm there to discuss why I think that this book is not a good idea. And I get a question that is very personal. I'm not expecting to be asked that because I'm there as the expert. And so I come on, and she goes, the blonde goes, Dr. Barreca, and makes doctor sound like roadkill, first of all. So Dr. Barreca. We hear you have a real problem with our book. And I said, well, yes, actually, I do. I think that your book really um, is not only disrespectful to women, but is actually, you know, it shows an enormous contempt for men. I said, if I were a guy, I'd be like protesting outside your publisher's office. I mean, this just, you know, shows men as morons. I don't think that this is respectful to men at all. And she says, well, you know, we're both on our first marriage. How many times have you been married? And you know, the audience sort of goes, ooh. And I think, you know what? I'm too close to menopause to, you know, just not have a good time with this. And so I asked her honestly, I actually said, I've been married twice. And she said, well, like I said, we're both on our first marriage. And I said, yeah, honey, but I'm on my last. And there's a pause in the response. And then the audience really starts to laugh. And some old lady back in the audience yells out, you go, girl. And I thought, I'm just going to have fun. And you know, there's a reason I'm an English teacher and make my students learn the lines from the books that they're studying. And I said, look, my problem with your book is that on page 18, you say, and I quote, that a rules girl should never laugh in front of a guy she finds attractive, that she has to be like the Mona Lisa. She has to just smile. She can't laugh out loud. She should save the laughter for her girlfriends. I said, you know, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You can't laugh out loud. And I said that on page 118, it says, no matter how hot the sex gets, you have to remain cool. And I said, you can't laugh out loud. You can't have hot sex. Why do you want a partner? I said, this is, you know, you could live alone. You would always know where the remote was. You know, you can hire people to open jars. I mean, you don't have to find a partner just to do that. They didn't think that was funny. And um, then at one point, the blonde said to me, and this was her real mistake, she said, oh, I think the lady doth protest too much. And I said, it's the lady doth protest too much, methinks. I'm correcting this woman's misuse of Shakespeare on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I mean, at that point, the audience was laughing and laughing. You know, we're going back to Elizabeth Janeway's definition of power, where she says power is the ability not to have to please. And one of the nice things about being on those shows is knowing I don't have to please. She had this graceful sense of humor that could be emotionally honest at the same time. And although it wasn't on the syllabus, we were going to have to do the same. The writing prompts demanded a type of emotional exposure that I'd never had to give in an academic setting before. In the third week, we were assigned this essay. Write the letter of apology you have been hoping to get. Write it from their point of view. And make it convincing. So I sat down to this prompt with an idea, but certainly not one that I wanted to share with all my classmates. Did I want these people to see me in this way? I typed it up and sent it in anyway. 
but something sort of amazing happened. As I read through my classmates' essays, I realized that we all simultaneously took the plunge. There were apologies from parents who had been absent, admissions of guilt or jealousy from exes, and honest moments from each of our personal histories that we never thought we'd tell 13 strangers about. We made an unspoken agreement that week. We weren't going to be strangers anymore. And there was an agreement between Professor Bereka and all of us. We would unravel our stories, and she would help us make them better. Well, stories and feelings go together. I mean, you need to figure out why you feel a certain way, you think something, you worry about something. There is a story behind it. So I will often say, when a student walks in, what's your story? When I would ever have a conversation with my dad, he would always start with, what's your story? Give me your story. And so I always had a story. What's your story? Stories were always important in my family, and they're important to me because it's more than just an exchange of information. You choose to put words in a certain order. Often the story that's on the top, the information that you think that you're giving that's gonna be the story isn't gonna be the real story. And so that you need to talk around it, you need to figure out what the story is, and then as you're sort of circling around it, you'll realize that putting words in a certain order and the way you tell the story sometimes leads you to understand that it's the story underneath the ostensible story that's really going to matter. So I have an admission to make. I think I've been circling around the story of this podcast. Hearing those words from Professor Bereka again, I'm asking myself, what's the story underneath? I went to her looking for guidance on this episode. She said to me, Allie, you've been working on it for too long. You just have to get it done. You just have to go in there and finish it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And you know what? She's right. She called me out and that's what I needed. And I'm starting to realize that's what good professors do. It's not the assignments or the grades they give you that make you a better student. It's how they allow you to see yourself. They reflect to you the most important lessons. But you know what? I think I'm going to let Professor Baraka take this one. The first woman professor I ever had at Dartmouth was a woman named Faith. Faith Dunn. She had dark curly hair. She was like the only other person at Dartmouth who had dark curly hair. She had a family. Uh, she had a husband and kids. And it was like you could be a professor and actually have a life. I mean, that was amazing. She didn't feel that somehow she had to compartmentalize the parts of her life so that it wasn't that she had to only seem to be a scholar and not a person. You could see that she had a lot going on, but she always had time for any student who wanted to come in. She was maternal, but not in a soft and easy way. She was maternal, you know, in a, in a wonderful sense in that you felt that her respect for you was unconditional, but her admiration for you was going to depend on how well you did. <laughs> and I've never put it that way before, but I think that that was really it. And so she was somebody who I looked at and thought, wait a minute, maybe I could be somebody like that. 
And it was the first time that I ever saw a woman who seemed to have both a professional life and a personal life that she integrated and that she seemed to enjoy. She seemed happy. And she was also somebody who I remember calling me on my stuff when, you know, I handed in something that clearly wasn't as good as it should have been. She, like, turned it back and said, "This, is, you know, you didn't do what you should have done with this. Do this again. And I was like, okay, it's not just because she likes me that she's going to like everything I do. And my teachers, both as an undergraduate and when I was a graduate student, were enormously kind to me. And I always promised myself that I would try to be as welcoming as they were to my students if I were ever fortunate enough to be in the position that they were in at a university. And so I've tried to model myself after them. I'm just part of a legacy, I think, of teachers that have seen the way that people thrive when they feel somebody's got their back. And that doesn't mean being uncritical. I mean, I present a very honest, critical response to the students who then rise to the occasion. So I guess this story is about the tenderness in being called out, the love behind a critical comment. Professor Bereka was calling me on my stuff, not as an act of disrespect, but as a push for my own self-improvement. And isn't that the ultimate assignment? Being seen as something more than you think you are, and then being asked to write, to think, and to be as good as you are. Seeing this legacy of women, of professors who push their students beyond self-doubt, makes this whole college thing suddenly bigger than grades and GPAs. It's uncomfortable getting a C. And at first, it's uncomfortable getting to know the people who can give Cs. So arming myself with a cup of coffee and a genuine interest to get to know this obviously wise woman I saw that the grades were just a stand-in for a challenge. A challenge that I needed to face. So professors are people. People who want you to succeed. People who know how good you can be. Even if you don't. So go grab a cup of coffee. Bring it to your favorite professor and start to get to know their story or someone who you think could be your favorite professor, or the professor who just gave you a C. You probably despise them right now, but they could become your new best friend. Thanks for listening to my first episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Professors Are People Too is recorded and produced by me, Ali Oshinsky, but there are plenty of other people involved. I'd like to give a special thanks to Jason McMullen, Danielle Shalhoub, Ruth Fairbanks, and Sean Forbes for their guidance on the creation of this first episode. I'd also like to give a special thanks to my professor, Gina Bereka. Thank you for being my debut subject. Keep your eyes peeled for the next episode of Professors Are People Too at whus.org. This is Professor. 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 Professors are people, too.